Hi, this is Ryan Evans from War on the Rocks. We have a very special edition of our podcast series here. We're going to be talking about Asia and Asian security. I have three distinguished guests who are going to be uh, helping us along to understand these issues. We have Dean Chang, Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Robert Haddock, uh, Research Consultant for Special Operations Command, and uh, TX Hammes, who needs no introduction. And uh, so a lot of the world's attention is focused on the Middle East right now, and secondarily Ukraine, uh, but there's actually a lot happening in Asia uh, this week even, and one of those things is the protests in Hong Kong. Dean, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's what's going on there and what's likely to happen? Well, the uh, immediate issue that's been going on is that Hong Kong is uh, arguing basically over how is it going to select its chief executive. And the Chinese are showing that um, they are excellent lawyers, and when there are as many lawyers per capita with them as we have, then we're all going to be in deep trouble. (laughs) Um, But basically, the Chinese have said the agreement was that there would be universal suffrage uh, in terms of who would be able to vote for chief executive, and the Chinese are, in fact, abiding by those terms. What they are saying, however, is that Beijing will decide who you, the people of Hong Kong, get to cast your vote for, which you know, is certainly within the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. So we have seen tens of thousands of people, mostly uh, students, but also some office workers and others, take to the streets of downtown Hong Kong to say that they are not happy with this. Um, The good news here is that the central authorities in both Hong Kong and Beijing have actually avoided bloodshed. Um, They did overreact somewhat last weekend when they sent the cops out with tear gas and pepper spray and baton charges, but um, the police have pulled back. Uh, The protesters have uh, cleared some of the barricades away from government buildings. There really hasn't been much in the way of violence, so it looks like uh, the situation is on the path to resolution. So that's the broad outlines of what's going on. And what, what's the sort of most likely way that you think this plays out? Most likely course of action that Beijing is likely to follow? Well, in terms of just the voting issue, it looks frankly like the students and the protesters have probably lost. Um, Beijing issued a white paper in June and reiterated the point in a National People's Congress comment at the end of August that they are not going to compromise on this. The larger issues, though, are the worrisome parts. First, there's the reality that Hong Kong is not happy as it's slowly being integrated and assimilated into China. Uh, This is just the most recent of a long series of protests going back probably the last three years. Everything from school curricula to the fact that Chinese um, consumers are uh, raiding Hong Kong almost. The term, the local term is locust tourists. It's a Hmm. lovely image. Uh, because they basically strip uh, parts of Hong Kong of things like uh, baby milk powder because there's no trust in consumer product safety in China. The other piece to this is that this was the first real challenge to Xi Jinping. Here was a crisis that he could not manipulate and he could not automatically control, unlike the East China Sea Air Defense Identification Zone or the controversy about the oil rig with the Vietnamese. The fact that he seems to have won it, and we don't really know how it'll turn out yet, but let's assume that he does, is a huge feather in his cap. It really will be a point that he will be able to play against other factions in China. Um, But it does suggest that uh, he's going to have a rocky period in office. And let me just note here also, 
back earlier this year, the Chinese established something called the State Security Commission, sort of like our NSC. Uh, it's supposed to be in charge of internal security, but we have heard almost nothing about it in the context of Hong Kong. So I suspect that that just shows that this organization is new and quite likely to be very powerless. One of the interesting angles here that I think people are talking less about, at least in the U.S., is how this impacts China's relations with its neighbors in the region, uh, and which in turn obviously has a lot of uh, security implications to the United States as we have a lot of allies in the region. Uh, I'll just start with you, Dean, and then maybe we can go around and see what you guys think. Well, the Chinese approach to Hong Kong was explicitly one country, two systems. And that formulation was really aimed not so much at Hong Kong. At the end of the day, Hong Kong was tiny. That was really a, a um, temptation uh, post-Taiwan. And the reality is that, as the Chinese have made very clear, that they have no intention of really allowing two systems in the context of Hong Kong. It makes one country, two systems pretty much a dead letter for Taiwan. In the impending 2016 elections, that means that you're likely to have a lot more tension between Beijing and Taipei. Robert, what do you think? Well, I agree with uh, everything that uh, Dean just said. Uh, the Taiwan issue has been quiescent uh, for um, the past uh, six, six, seven years. Uh, that if it, uh, that could uh, make a dramatic uh, turn for the worse. Uh, in terms of uh, regional tensions uh, here in the next in the next couple of years, and uh, adding uh, flames to a, a region that uh, doesn't need any more uh, at the current time, uh, I think more broadly, uh, un unfavorable developments uh, in Hong Kong uh, or or Taiwan that that. Um, uh, further tarnish um, the uh, reputation of uh, the, the, the uh, Communist Party leadership in, in Beijing uh, will make a resolution of, uh, of other disputes uh, in the region more difficult to come by, uh, uh, which will then mean that uh, uh, the ver various actors in these disputes will have to uh, go back to their uh, um, other balancing techniques, uh, military modernization, uh, arms spending and so forth uh, in order to um, uh, take the measures necessary they think to protect their security. TX? I think in addition to the military and political aspects, there's a significant economic aspect here. Uh, foreign direct investment in China is down. This is not just as a result of China's pressure they put in various places, although I think there's a direct correlation between the Senkakus and the Japanese shift of foreign direct investment to <coughs> other nations. But um, China's at a tough place right now economically. The economy is already kind of the brakes are coming on. They're facing a number of massive economic challenges in the future. Uh, automation taking away the, the value of cheap labor, rising shipping costs, all those sorts of things which make China's business model less functional. Um, when you add on top of that this pressure, which reduces the incentive for foreign direct investment. Because besides the Hong Kong issue that spills over to Taiwan and spills over in the neighborhood, as an investor, I might be a little hesitant to look at China as being a good place to go. So I think that's the piece that while he'll get a victory for the handling the political aspects of this, I think downstream this is going to be a costly event. 
I think the Taiwan angle is particularly interesting, and it just so happens that Brian McGrath, who's a contributor at Warner Rocks, I think all, all three of you know him. Um, I know TX. Actually, That's a burden, but we do. <laughs> I actually met TX when uh, we had Brian. Or I met Brian when we had TX and him debate uh, air sea battle. Uh, gosh, that was two years ago now. I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, Brian's Brian's in Taiwan right now, and uh, he has emailed us this question from the field. He said, "President Ma." has a national security strategy based on three pillars, improved cross-strait relations, more active international diplomacy, and strong defense. From all accounts, it seems to be working, but it raises for me an interesting question. While the two variables are not the only ones in play, it appears that cross-strait relations have improved, even as the security balance has moved demonstrably in China's favor. Is there a case to be made for Taiwan to spend less on defense as a result? I pose this because I have come to think about a lot of fine lines that Taiwan must walk. And I find myself in meetings with some folks who seem metaphysically certain of their ideas, wondering if they have any concept of how hard it is to pull off what Ma is pulling off in Taiwan. Um, I think it's interesting in that the obvious military response from Taiwan is a hedgehog. Uh, a lot of mines, a lot of cheap anti-ship missiles, a lot of cheap anti-armor missiles, uh, cheap weapons that keep you from getting ashore. And I think Taiwan could make a landing impossible. It's interesting when Taiwan does spend money, they're looking for F-16s and prestige weapons, and I'm not sure how much that is a strategic thought or just internal politics within the services in Taiwan. But I think that, uh, I'm not an expert on Taiwan, but it seems to be the president has said the real way to secure Taiwan is a good relationship with China. And spending money on defense right now is not a good way to do that. I mean, if you start this hedgehog strategy openly, it's pretty pointedly poking at Taiwan or at China and saying, we're going to make sure you can't take us. That may not be the safest thing for Taiwan to do now. So I think, as, as Brian said, there's a, a balancing act they have to do here that's a really tough one. I, I just say two things. Uh, first, uh, President Ma, for uh, whatever all of his accomplishments, uh, he's the lame duck now. So it really doesn't matter what uh, talking about the future, what his policies are. We need to know what the policies are for candidates uh, coming up that will be running in the next uh, presidential election. That that should be the interesting question. And then second, I would say I'm a little bit uh, befuddled uh, by Taiwan's uh, defense policy. Uh, I agree completely with the with the uh, ideal strategy or defense approach uh, that uh, TX uh, just described there. But uh, that, that also sort of requires a, a societal or a cultural commitment uh, to um, a Swiss, Switzerland or, or Singapore or Israeli type of uh, uh, mobilization of society to, to defend it. Uh, and, and Taiwan seems to be going in the opposite direction towards a a smaller uh, professional military and less engagement of uh, broader Taiwanese society in defense. So um, I'm not sure what they're doing with their defense policy. It just policy. seems to have negative, uh, for them at least, negative social consequences by involving your nation less in its defense. Uh, Dean? I mean, the Taiwans are in a couple of difficult spots. They're moving. They're trying to move to an all-volunteer force, but the combination of... Um, a uh, unfortunate incident involving the death of a conscript uh, and a long-standing uh, cultural almost um, 
uh, suspicion of the military, uh, unfortunately tied to the history of the Kuomintang and everything else, has meant that um, they actually had to shelve the initial plan for shifting to an all-volunteer force because they couldn't get enough volunteers. Hmm. Um, that's a bad sign. Uh, the idea of buying these prestige weapons, I think TX hit it on the head, is in no small part, they need, they want a political demonstration. If America loves them, if America will stand by them, it will sell them fill-in-the-blank weapon. Uh, F-16 CDs were, was the standard, now they want F-35s. They would like Aegis, they would like you know, all sorts of things. They want submarines, not nuclear-powered submarines, but they want submarines. Um, you know, I think that, is that the best systems available? At the end of the day, I think in Taiwan there is a feeling, if China really wants to take Taiwan, the only way to stop them is for the United States to intervene. And they would like some evidence for a place that is not really a country in the eyes of many, where we don't call it a country, um, where we don't have an alliance with them. We have the U.S.-Taiwan, you know, the Taiwan uh, Relations Act. They want evidence that we will come to their rescue. And that is often at odds because that's political, but that's money. That's high-profile projects versus things that would work but aren't really visible. Could you remind our audience just on a basic level the things that we do according to our obligations owe Taiwan in terms of its defense? Under the Taiwan Relations Act, um, it's a whole lot of, of diplomatic speak, but it comes down to we promise that we will help Taiwan to defend itself, which translates to arms <coughs> sales. We will maintain the ability to fulfill the TRA, which often means um, implicitly the ability to field a competent, capable military. Um, Taiwan will be treated almost like a country, so we maintain the American Institute on, in Taiwan, things like that, which all are sort of physical presence. Um, and we, the U.S., do try to get Taiwan into things like the International Civil Aviation Organization, the World Health Organization, to make sure that it has some diplomatic room to maneuver. Um, at the end of the day, however, this is not a treaty. So if you think of NATO as the ultimate gold standard, absolutely we'll be there from day one. And most of our other treaty commitments, as half a step below, Congress has to say yes. This is a law. This is not a treaty. So it's an even more delicate position. Okay. Um, I'd like to just pause the conversation briefly. We're going to do what we always do with the War on the Rocks podcast, is briefly talk about what we're drinking. We're here at the Jefferson Hotel's Quill Bar, uh, as we almost always are. Uh, great place to have a drink, if you haven't been here already. Uh, TX, what do you got there? A flying dog amber lager. What do you think? Very nice. It's a local product, too, so that's good. Frederick, uh, Maryland. All right. Robert? I'm uh, drinking a Cabernet Sauvignon from uh, Paso Robles, uh, called uh, from the winery called uh, Rendario, and uh, it's quite good. Uh, I can say that um, I spent about half my life uh, in California, and much of it in Northern California, uh, so I uh, spent a lot of time in the wine country up there. Uh, Paso Robles is in Central California, and I, I've visited there many times, and sampled uh, the wineries and uh, restaurants down there. It's a very appealing place. 
I That's mean, a long way of saying he's disloyal to Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were mostly a West... I mean, I know Marines usually spend more of their career on one coast to the other. You were mostly in California. You were mostly TX. West Coast and Asia. Oh, so you both were. All right. All right. And uh, I'm having a fine uh, vintage of hydrogen hydroxide. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get back to Asia. Um, one of the enduring problems in... America's efforts to maintain the security architecture um, in Asia is the South Korean-Japanese relationship. And, uh, you know, it obviously is rooted in World War II and actually before that, but uh, what are some of the things that America can do to, if not solve this problem, help get around it? And what are some of the sort of defense implications that people talk less about? Uh, Jim Pristop, who's a colleague, uh, took a trip to Korea several years ago and spoke only to former members of the legislature because they don't have a party line and they won't give you the party line. And he said, what do you think? And to a man, they said, for all this kerfuffle about Japan, and this is when the island incident first came up, he said, remember, they've invaded us twice. China's invaded us 300 times. And each of them had a figure... In the hundreds, they were not all, they were, none of them were right, but they were all very convinced that China's been there hundreds of times. So, below the public fur, you know, the public uh, attention level, the real decision makers understand the real problem is China. Uh, now they're having to balance the problem of now their economy is tied very, very tightly to China. And therefore, there's been a leaning of Korea toward China until the charm offensive went away, uh, and the Chinese started back more aggressive. So that has pushed them back. We've had some recent progress in there with uh, Chinese or Japanese-Korean relations. And so I think that we have to just keep encouraging that and let the Chinese continue to play the hand. If they continue to play the hand the way they're playing, this will work for us. If you mean that if China keeps being aggressive and yes. assertive, it'll just drive away all of its neighbors? When you're playing poker, it's good to have somebody who's playing his hand badly. <laughs> um, I would say that the administration has been doing uh, a, a very good job when it comes to Korea. It was a bit flaky initially, um, but since then it has been persistent and consistent. And those are probably the two most important things for Asia policy writ large. It has been consistent in saying we are not going to pay a third time for the North Korean nuclear program. We are not going to engage in talks with the North Koreans until they actually show some you know, willingness to abide by their own, you know, by their commitments. Um, and we are going to maintain a presence. There's been no talk about cutting back American forces in Korea or anything like that. Um, and this is a policy choice, but it's a respectable one, which is we are going to let Seoul take the lead. And President Park has, in fact, taken the lead, and she, too, has been in close coordination, producing a consistent policy. Um, there hasn't been much movement on the Korean Peninsula. That's not a fault of the White House. It's not a fault of the Blue House. That ultimately comes down to North Korea. Um, the fact that nobody at this point is really even sure if Kim Jong-un is still in charge... Uh, just is a reminder that this, you know, North Korea is sort of a mini version of Stalinist Soviet Union, which means that we get to trot out the Churchill quote that it is a riddle wrapped in enigma, you know, set in a mystery. 
that's this place. What is going on in North Korea? Let's talk about that briefly. I mean, I know we don't know, but what, what are the rumors? What are the different scenarios floating around? Are the possible things? So you want us to do a Fox News thing where we just speculate with no knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll pass on that. <laughs> if, if anyone, you know, we've all been following the news. Either he's sick, he's been deposed, or something's happened. Or his sister's ruling, or, or his sister's ruling. ruling, or there's like 47 different potential stories. I think the safest thing to say is that Kim Jong-un has not been seen in public for several weeks, and this has sparked an enormous amount of speculation. There have been a couple of press releases from the North Koreans that has sparked a lot of curiosity and concern because they actually mentioned that his health wasn't perfect. Remember, this is the same... Which is unusual. Which is unusual because, you know, he comes from a family where, you know, his father, the first time he played golf, had like, you know, 12 holes in one and, you know, six birdies. I mean, you know, we don't... If you're in North Korea, there is no flaw, certainly, in the Kim family. So to say... You know, he was feeling discomfort is pretty significant. What does that really mean? That's, going back to DX's point, that's where it's all speculation. It's guesswork. I don't think, you know, those who know aren't in a position to say, and if you're North Korean and you say, you're not going to be breathing for very long. You know, for everybody else, it's wild speculation. All right. Um, now... Since Robert slipped me a 20 earlier, I'm going to plug his book. <laughs> uh, Robert's out with a new book called Fire in the Water. Fire on the Water. Um, why don't you walk us through a few of the major defense recommendations that you make in your book? Well, yes, uh, Fire on the Water, China, America, the Future of the Pacific. Uh, the book is, it's, uh, it comes in two halves. The first half is a, a description of, of uh, U.S. defense uh, policy uh, in the region and, and how it uh, grew up to be that way since uh, World War II. And, uh, and, and the, the state of affairs right now uh, is that uh, I conclude in that first half of the book that, that uh, U.S. defense policy is not adapted to the uh, missile and sensor revolution that uh, uh, China, uh, Chinese military planners and strategists are very successfully exploiting. Uh, and I and I come to that. I believe that uh, U.S. defense uh, policy hasn't adapted for a variety of uh, uh, bureaucratic uh, inertia reasons and so forth, which I describe. And so the second half of the book is uh, is prescriptive. Uh, what sort of changes uh, the U.S. Uh, needs to make in, in terms of uh, diplomacy, uh, security, uh, cooperation in the region. Uh, with respect to uh, strategy, uh, policies, and programs in the Pentagon and so forth in order to um, uh, construct a, a comprehensive uh, approach uh, to uh, the growing Chinese military problem that uh, can uh, keep maintain, uh, maintain stability, reinforce deterrence, and uh, manage uh, an open-ended uh, security competition in the region. All right. Um. We were talking earlier before the interview, uh, I think this is an interesting point to touch on. Uh, I think everyone in this room, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I'm assuming everyone in this room, no one wants a war with China. Uh, this is that's all, It's un, an undesirable outcome for a lot of reasons. Everyone's nodding their heads, listeners. Um, but if a war between the China and the U.S. were to happen, when is, when is it most likely to happen? What's the most dangerous time period? I think that's an interesting question to explore. And there's, on one hand, you could argue, 
Uh, China knows it's not yet strong enough to fight a war with America, so they're going to delay as long as possible, probably about 20 years. Um, there's another side that says China's dealing with a lot of increasingly internal problems and might be more likely to go to war. And then there's the third, which is just you never know when you're... Generally, we're really bad at predicting when major wars are about to erupt, and if we were good at predicting them, they might not happen in the first place. So I just want to throw that out there for the group. Well, I would say that uh, there's a, there's time pressure. Uh, there could be a, per, a perception of time pressure in Beijing extending over, say, the next 10 years. Uh, because this is the this would be the period of time when uh, China's um, military modernization program will uh, really be begin to fully flower with with the build out of its command and control and, and sensor uh, networks uh, it, over the uh, East and South China Sea, Western Pacific, and so forth. Um, build out of it, of its uh, uh, land based uh, uh, maritime. Um, attack capabilities, in other words, it's anti-Navy, land-based anti-Navy capabilities, uh, missile-based uh, power, maritime strike aircraft, second artillery, uh, anti-maritime forces, and so forth, in the 2020-2025 time frame. Uh, so, uh, and meanwhile, over on the U.S. side, budget problems uh, in the U.S., problems with uh, 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 U.S. Um, uh, program management in the Pentagon. Uh, not not too many um, uh, programs in, in the pipeline uh, that are relevant to the Chinese problem uh, will be coming out uh, up up to the year 2025. So decision makers in in China uh, could um, think come to the conclusion that they may. Uh, be able to achieve escalation dominance uh, in certain scenarios. Uh, Could you explain to some of our listeners might not know what that term is? Well, let's say that uh, that there's a, a crisis develops uh, uh, in in the South China Sea or East China Sea. Uh, China has been doing this uh, so, so-called salami slicing strategy, where they're trying to make small incremental uh, grabs of uh, territory or positions in these seas. And now, at some point. Um, the U.S. and its uh, partners are going to have to draw a line and, and say no, and that's going to create a crisis when that happens. And uh, the U.S. has always, uh, in the past, uh, figured that it's, it's been able to, to dominate a situation by escalating militarily, sending in the carrier strike groups and so forth. Now, what happens in the future when, if uh, the Chinese military planners conclude that, well, we've been preparing for this for 20 years, this is the scenario that we've been working on since the early 1990s. And uh, not, now it's the year 2020 or 2025. And we have uh, the missile forces in place now, and we can dominate the situation rather than the Americans. Now it's an extremely dangerous situation when both sides believe that they have uh, escalation dominance in a situation like that. Yeah. I would tend to agree. I think it's the next decade to decade and a half that's dangerous for all the reasons Robert said, and I would add a couple others. One is our approach. If we insist on this high-technology uh, war, that would convince China that they can win the short war, um, particularly with uh, our reliance on cyber and space, which are still offense-dominated. There may be a period where you begin to see a shift where defense can be actually viable in space and cyber, then that closes the Chinese window of opportunity. The other thing that's going to close the Chinese window of opportunity is the aging population 
the ecological problems they've got, all of these sorts of problems will, will accumulate, and they'll have a window uh, where, if we're going to go, this is as good as it's going to get. And then it would be a very strange decision to decide to go, because uh, this is a, a worldwide global depression when the U.S. and China decide to fight each other. See, I'm going to take a somewhat different approach. I don't disagree with anything either Robert or has said, but I'm going to throw out some other ways of um, slicing and dicing. So I would say that one of the first crisis periods is going to be the window 2016 to 2018. 2016, we have a Taiwan election. We have an American election. Um, and in Taiwan, I would say that there is a non-zero chance that you could wind up with the Democratic Progressive Party, which historically has tended towards independence, coming to power. The current president, President Ma, comes from the KMT. He has been more than willing to keep the whole issue of independence off the front pages. Um, so you would wind up with a Chinese government confronted with a Taiwan that might be seen as pro-independence, which they haven't had to deal with for... A, as of 2016, um, eight years. And Xi Jinping wasn't in power the last time you had a DPP president. So in that regard, he's going to be a little bit on the untested side. The problem is that he himself is going to be looking at a power transition, not for himself, but for his, the rest of his leadership group, the Politburo Standing Committee, coming up in 2017. Five of the seven people are going to have to step down. So he's going to be spending a whole lot of time putting out domestic fires and trying to get his people onto the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee. So everybody's attention is going to be someplace else when you drop the whole issue of the possibility of a pro-independence party coming to power in Taipei. So that's my first window. My second one is sometime overlapping the period that Robert and TX have talked about, but for a different reason, which is after 2022, Xi Jinping will have to step down. She is of the gen last part of the generation that lived through the Cultural Revolution. That means he and his cohort is the last group of people who know just how far China has come and therefore how much China has to lose. 2022 is going to see a whole new generation of Chinese leaders come in whose attitude is, we bad. <laughs> we are badass. Why? Because for their entire Political lifetime, China has always been on an upward trajectory. Economy growing, number two economy in the world for much of their time. They have a space program, they have a navy, they have an air force. You know, they have, and they know relative stability at home. The worst thing that happened in their lifetime, Tiananmen, which remember, was fomented by the United States and was put down by the valiant effort of the People's Liberation Army at great cost to themselves. That's how it's presented in China. So after 2022, you're going to have a leadership who is looking forward and upward, not looking back and saying, you know, we've got to walk real carefully because I know how far we've come. So I'd say those are your two big windows of instability, um, which, again, doesn't contradict at all anything either Robert or TX said, but I think it's just sort of a different spin on specific, uh, Specificity to, to windows. What, what, how, how much can this upward growth, both economically, just in terms of general power, how, how long can it continue? Can it continue to 20, 
2020, 2022. Yeah, continue until the last pangolin and dolphin is eaten. <laughs> right. Interesting way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so, because uh, uh, its growth is slowing. Right? I'm a minority opinion on this, but I think there are a lot of indicators that both growth is slowing <clears throat> and not. I mean, they've, they've slowed to seven and a half officially. Uh, but I think it's going to be below that, significantly below that. And then, of course, that puts China in a very awkward position. Um, recently, in a trip through uh, Southeast Asia, we talked to a lot of speakers who, who felt China's rise is inexorable. Nothing will change that. Uh, but I think that's way too optimistic about China. Now, they make the valid point. People have been predicting China's economy going off the rails since 1980, and it just never does. But uh, the problems with automation, with growing environmental issues, growing middle class, uh, trying to shift. One of the problems is manufacturing is onshoring to the United States. The energy formula changed dramatically in the United States as long as we don't screw that up, which we're trying hard to do. Uh, if we keep that going, then more industry will come back because energy costs will be so much cheaper here. Uh, natural gas here is, what, $4.00? But in China, it's about $17. It's hard to compete in an energy-intensive industry when you're paying four times as much for your basic ingredient. So I think we'll see a lot more of that. When it comes back to the United States, that's the good news. It's coming back. The bad news is there won't be any jobs associated with it because robots will be doing them. But just let me quickly add, I, I agree with the TX that the, the Chinese economy or uh, its uh, Chinese economic um, operational concept is unstable. Uh, they clearly have a, have a, a debt bubble uh, tied to uh, real estate uh, and industrial uh, excessive, excessive investment there. Um, uh, all, all debt bubbles eventually crash, and uh, China will not be any exception in this case. Uh, so uh, I think the, the, the question for, for us uh, looking in from the outside is uh, what effect, if any, uh, would economic instability have on uh, China's external policy, on its uh, military uh, programs and modernization? Might not have any effect at all, or may uh, cause those programs to accelerate. So uh, um, it's just hard to say. I mean, that's one of the problems, and I think Robert hit it right on the head, which is it may not matter if their economy slows down. A China that fails, short of completely coming apart and looking like the former Soviet Union, um, but a China whose economy slows down may not be distinguishable in terms of external policies. It may be every bit as obnoxious. It may be every bit as nationalist. It may be every bit as territorially you know, uh, set in its ways as a China that is expanding. Um, so in that regard, it's just it may have fewer resources, but it may wind up being more willing to squeeze the population and being more willing to be aggressive, ironically enough. I mean, you know, this is the classic social science matrix kind of thing, right? China succeeds, China fails, China becomes more aggressive, China becomes more inwardly looking. So in the best of all possible worlds, you wind up with a China that economically expands but is inwardly looking. Sort of back to a Deng Xiaoping kind of thing. Would be great. Not necessarily likely. The scariest one is the China that fails and is aggressive, because now you're talking about a country that thinks are, their back is to the wall, and it's got a lot less to lose. On that note, 
on that happy note, huh? One one thing I'd like to ask about is, you know, you ask people, America's most likely peer or near peer competitor is China, and most people will say China. Some people say Russia, most people say China. Um, if you look at our defense acquisition development strategy, are is it is it right? What weapons weapons platform systems should we be investing in? Uh, should we be investing in? That we're not now, or are, or do we have it right? You've got a whole chapter on this. <laughs> Tee off. <laughs> well, uh, I, I discussed this in my book, uh, Fire on the Water. Uh, but the, the broader point, which you can buy on Amazon <laughs> and bookstores, we'll actually everywhere. link to it on the page. So if you're listening to this, you'll see the link to his book. Just look down a little bit; it's right there. <laughs> Thank, thanks very much, Ryan. Uh, but I'll just just in broad terms, I say what what the U.S. and its partners in the region need. Uh, is they need a, a broad, comprehensive strategy, which uh, means a full toolbox of tools, uh, diplomatic tools, economic tools, uh, information, media, propaganda tools, uh, security cooperation uh, tools. Uh, and then in the military um, part of the toolbox, which is just one part of the whole toolbox, um, both conventional and unconventional uh, capabilities, offense and defense, uh, in order to uh, afford policymakers a, a full uh, range of uh, options and choices uh, to manage this uh, open-ended uh, competition. Uh, so uh, the other as um, uh, advantage of having the full toolbox of tools is it uh, complicates the adversary's planning and uh, uh, makes makes uh, their responses uh, more difficult. So that, that's, that's my broad answer to that. I'm going to take a little bit different view on this. I think a full toolbox is interesting, provided you're not doing cost imposition on yourself. For instance, if uh, they shoot missiles at us because their missiles are about a million dollars a pop and our pack missiles are $3 million a pop, we're on the wrong end of that. Similarly, if we decide we want to penetrate China and we build the B-3, uh, or now the long-range strike bomber is the official, title, we're promising $500 million a copy, and if you've got that, if you buy that, I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona for you. But let's say we're really brilliant, and we bring it in at less than the cost of the previous weapon system, which I don't think has ever happened in U.S. Defense Department history, so it'd be about $2 billion a copy. So the question is, do you want to go with this, which they then have to defend against a single type of weapon system, or do you want to buy a mix of cheap drones, cheap missiles, if you, if you have to do penetration, because the drones and missiles are also useful against ship targets and other targets. Essentially, A2AD, which is the thing that worries everybody, the anti-access aerial denial, works both ways, except A2AD is a lot cheaper than penetrating. Given our financial problems, I would like to see us look at a defense of the first island chain that's based on A2AD in cooperation with our allies. The, China, the Japanese are already moving that way with their joint dynamic defense and their move to the Southwest Islands. Uh, Japan's got a, a really good Navy. They've got some command and control issues, Air, Navy Air Force issues. As we work through those with them, I think that's the direction we go. And then we lead it off by complementing that. The F-35, the most expensive program in history, can't reach China. So we may be forced to A2AD because we have enough fuel to get back to our own bases, but not to get into China. Now, we drag the tankers forward, but then, of course, their response is to focus on the tankers. So we're building, I agree with you, we're building exactly the wrong set of weapon systems now. 
with the exception of the Virginia-class submarines and some of the things the Navy's doing with experiments with these uh, Slocum wave riders, essentially kind of self-deploying mines and torpedoes. That is the direction we go. A lot of the other stuff we're buying is just be great in Central Europe, but doesn't work in Asia. I think one of the really big problems, and with all due respect to my colleagues here, um, I'm afraid that their answers sort of go to the same problem, which is, more than anything else, I think we need to understand what the Chinese are thinking, or very difficult to do, but at least trying to do so, which is, I mean, you know, both Robert and TX are trying, but the problem is the larger government, I would submit, is much more focused on what programs can I buy and service concerns and COCOM concerns, and not nearly enough about, first off, what do you think the Chinese strategy is and how do I defeat it? So, you know, I mean, TX's comments about the budget aspect goes to a piece of that. You know, and I have to admit, I have not yet read Robert's book, but I will. Um, but, it, you know, if you don't address those things, then you're rearranging, to some extent, deck chairs. Because, well, we should buy this instead of that. Well, maybe none of those programs are relevant at all to the Chinese. And just a quick example here is, you know, on the one hand, the Chinese think that they want to be able to fight a short war. Not a bad idea. But they have spent an awful lot of time and energy developing things like mobilization planning. Our mobilization planning, I would submit, probably is sitting in binders not open since 1960. Now, that has implications for our ability to wage a long war. Does it force us to fight a short war, you know, air-sea battle and all the rest? Maybe it does. That's a really bad reason to fight air-sea battle or anything else. Do we have, is it a deterrent to be able to say, you know what? go into escalation dominance. Because there's a temporal piece there. You think you're going to win this war by fighting it for five years? Guess what? I'm going to be able to fight it for ten. How, how do you like them apples? That's part of the deterrent strategy that once upon a time we thought about when we took the other side seriously, when we weren't worried about needlessly antagonizing them by naming them. And today it's more sort of, well, that's really hard. And we're not going to think about hard things like that. So there's no neat answer to this. So, I, I, again, I'm not disagreeing with what Robert NTX has said, but I think that they're sort of nibbling at the edges here. And the heart of the matter is, I'm not sure we really focused on what the Chinese want to do and said, and we're going to keep you from doing it. I, I agree, Dean, with what you said. And in, in my book, I... What I uh, describe is a process whereby uh, U.S. strategists and planners uh, identify Chinese vulnerabilities, things that uh, they value uh, but are exposed, and, uh, and we come up with uh, ways to hold those things at risk. And it's not always a, uh, done through exotic uh, weapon systems. It can be done through political means, economic means. It can be done through uh, unconventional warfare means. So... Uh, all these different tools to, to, to hold uh, at risk uh, Chinese vulnerabilities. But I would also say there's a caution. This is the old strategic discussion. Do you focus on his intent or his capabilities? Yes. And you have to do both. And when you're talking about the intent aspect, the capability aspect must also be there. And then we've got to look and say, okay, if these are his capabilities, given my projected limited budgets and the gridlock we've managed to achieve 
between our and our political system and our weapons procurement system, what are the systems that I can afford on the margins, because that's where we are, that can neutralize those capabilities? So whatever his intent is, I can at least neutralize it. And I think that's it's part of this discussion of intent uh, and strategy. You want to try to understand that. But then you've got also what if, okay, if these are his capabilities, how do I neutralize those? All right. This has been a great conversation. And before we tie it off for the night, um, this is War on the Rocks. I'd like to – everyone here in the room has actually traveled all around the world. Uh, Dean, because he's a thoughtful, intellectual person, and Robert and Tix, because they're knuckle-dragging Marines. But uh, <laughs> what is the most uh, – your favorite and or most interesting local drink, local alcoholic drink that you've come across in all your – all your travels. TX, why don't we start with you? I'm going to leave most interesting alone because that leads you into the most disgusting <laughs> category and we won't go there. I would say um, I like Irish whiskey, particularly in the summertime. And a summer trip to Ireland, uh, Jameson has a reserve, a 21-year-old reserve that is a very nice uh, because of the triple filter and everything. It's a very clean whiskey. For a uh, summer whiskey and a winter whiskey, a Laphroaig or something smokier. And actually, I mean, scotch, a different kind of whiskey, is very popular in Japan. Uh, so we can yes. tie that back to Asia. No. <laughs> Robert? Well, uh, uh, I'm a uh, red wine uh, aficionado and uh, not, not an expert uh, by any means, but uh, I, I have uh, my preferences. And, and of course, uh, the story uh, with uh, China's rise has been uh, uh, Chinese interest in uh, in the Bordeaux uh, region and uh, uh, Rothschild and, and so forth. Uh, but actually, my uh, personal preference of, of French wine is uh, over in the Rhone Valley, southern Rhone Valley, uh, the Chateauneuf-du-Pape uh, uh, region, and all the, the family plots uh, in there uh, just to... Uh, of north of uh, Avignon, so that's that. That's my favorite French wine. All right. Uh, I'm just going to note that uh, one of the most interesting and oddest experiences was winding up in a jazz bar in Kyoto, uh, where I had um, my first beer. Actually, uh, it was a Heineken. Um, but <laughs> second of all, it was a brick. Uh, uh, jazz bar. It was run by a Japanese gentleman who clearly had spent decades collecting jazz records because the walls were just completely you know, filled with shelf after shelf. He had a top-notch sound system, and um, I would say that uh, I don't know if it's still there. I hope it is, but um, for interesting places to sample alcoholic beverages, you know, finding a, a quiet little jazz bar in the middle of Kyoto, Franco. All right. Well, I'm, I'm a Scotch guy, and we are talking earlier, I, I very much enjoy Talisker and Lefroy. Uh But when I was an undergrad, I studied in Prague, and I have a very soft spot in my heart for uh, Bekarovka. I don't know if you guys have ever had that, but it's sort of a cinnamony uh, liqueur. Um, it's great. And you could buy it at Schneider's in town, actually, right by your office, Dean. Uh, anyway, thanks for doing this, guys. This was a really interesting conversation. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you.